Every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. This is a lot of money changing hands here. $3.5 billion and how that money is split up amongst those universities can change a lot of students' lives. And examining how that money is being spent is very important. Alleged abuse of graduate students under UF professors, or just in academia in general, under professors, will often go unnoticed until it's too late. That minimum wage change allows people to work minimum wage jobs without having to work a bunch of other jobs and be able to pay for things like food and rent and that kind of thing. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's get into the top stories from this week. The Florida Board of Governors, the organization that oversees all public universities, is putting forward a funding plan to boost three Florida universities' national rankings. Producer Ariana Aspidu spoke with Fresh Take Florida reporter Tristan Wood to dive into the ups and downs of the new proposed budget legislation for Florida's public universities. Tristan begins by laying out the budget request the Florida Board of Governors have submitted to the legislature. So the Board of Governors have submitted their 2022-2023 budget request to the Florida legislature. Their total request is a little bit over $3.5 billion, which is $200 million more uh, than last year's uh, actual budget. Uh, an important thing to note that this is just a request and budget's not going to be set in stone until the legislature actually meets, passes legislation uh, surrounding it, and actually makes decisions starting in January, that will actually affect what that budget looks like. The request includes specifically allocated amounts for different programs. One of them is for, uh, they were requesting uh, $150 million for it to go to the three universities in their preeminence program, which are uh, three universities that score above a certain level on certain metrics. Uh, the three universities that qualify for that in the state of Florida are the University of Florida, Florida State University, and the University of South Florida. So uh, within the request, with that amount being $150 million, uh, any money that gets allocated to the preeminence program budget each year, the Board of Governors recommends get split fairly. So they're requesting that each one of those universities uh, receive $50 million each. So can you give me a bit of information about how the schools are planning to use that money if they get it? The Board of Governors said that if the universities receive that money, they would use it to hire and help retain faculty improve buildings and other infrastructure, pay for research and development, and help fund support for student transfer programs. So in specifically targeting those things could increase those universities' national rankings. Specifically in the documents for the request that they submitted, the Board of Governors made it clear that although FSU and USF have climbed in the national rankings, they want them to climb even further. Uh, they've set the goal for FSU to be in the top 10 and for USF to be in the top 25. From your reporting, can you explain to me some of the things that led UF to reach the top five spot? I mean, it made huge news here. There are banners everywhere. Tell me a little bit about what factored into that. Uh, a big factor is that they spent a lot of money to get there. In 2019, UF hired 571 new faculty members. And in 2020, they hired 395. And that's during a pandemic year. So 
what hiring that faculty does is a lot is reduces the student faculty ratio, which gets a higher ranking in those national rankings. Uh, another thing that they did is that they spent big bucks to get deans from higher ranking universities than UF to hopefully boost the university in the rankings. So from what you heard, what are some of the criticisms to these new funding allocations? One of the large criticisms is that these types of funding metrics are going to help increase the universities that are already doing well, while leaving the, uh, the universities that aren't climbing the rankings as quickly out to dry and not giving them the funding they need to succeed. Uh, I've already discussed the preeminence funding portion, but another portion of the budget request is they were requesting uh, $280 million for its performance-based funding program, which splits money across Florida's 12 public universities based on uh, their rankings on 10 metrics. Some of those metrics include for your graduation rate and percent of students that are retained by a university after two years with a GPA over 2.0. Each university is required to put up 10% of their annual budget to this program, and if they score above a certain metric, uh, they get that money back. And if they score even higher, then they get that money basically up to doubled to their funding. So this is a program that disproportionately can benefit larger universities and also benefit universities that year after year meet those metrics. If you have a university that uh, some years don't meet that metric and some years uh, do, they could be missing out on tens of millions of dollars of funding each year. Uh, Representative Thompson uh, is a Democrat uh, representative from Orlando. Uh, she is uh, the ranking Democrat on the House Higher Ed Appropriations Committee. I was able to speak with her in between uh, her meeting, and one of the things that she said is that she was concerned that that type of uh, funding towards the universities that are doing really well would leave universities like FAMU out to dry and not give them the funding they need. Uh, FAMU is the highest ranking public uh, historically black college or university in the U.S. News and World Reports list. But if you've looked at the reporting and coverage uh, statewide, that came to for a lot less fanfare that this time around than FSU, UF, and USF climbing in the rankings. And how does this funding contribute to the experience and the overall life of a student at schools like FAMU that may have a little less funding? So... Uh, I spoke with a senior uh, FAMU environmental science major named Jordan Roberts. Uh, she basically told me that the lack of funding uh, could lead to uh, less members of faculty on staff, which causes courses to fill up a, a lot more quickly because less courses are available for each uh, required course that a student needs to graduate. This could leave students waiting multiple semesters to get the courses they need to graduate, have conflicts, which could further delay the four-year graduation rate that's being tied to this performance-based allocation, which then can in turn perpetuate the problem of them not receiving the funding they need to improve those numbers. The Board of Governors during their meeting where they talked about this proposal to the state legislature really pushed for those metrics because uh, Florida has the second uh, cheapest public education tuition rates of all the states. So one of the reasons they're saying that they're able to keep it so low is because they're able to keep this four-year graduation rate, excess credit amounts lower, uh, which lessens the cost it takes to run a university. However, when you run into a situation where your university like FAMU that's not necessarily receiving historically the funding that uh, UF, FSU, and uh, USF is receiving, 
uh, then you're going to run into some difficulties uh, performing well on those metrics and then getting out of that situation. And this story seems very newsworthy, especially since the top five ranking news here at UF was one of the biggest things in the past semester. How did you kind of find this specific aspect to the story? I was just looking through the lists of early appropriations uh, committee meetings that were happening. And I recognize that uh, uh, higher education budgeting and education budgeting in general is overlooked in a lot of coverage. This is a lot of money changing hands here. $3.5 billion and how that money is split up amongst those universities can change a lot of students' lives. And examining how that money is being spent is very important. You mentioned action happening in the future. What are you keeping your eye on moving forward? Is there any scheduled action soon? We're not going to get any answers to these questions until about January, when the legislative session begins in earnest. Uh, once that occurs, there will be discussions on whether the preeminence funding should be there. That was producer Ariana Aspidu speaking with Fresh Take Florida reporter Tristan Wood about the Florida Board of Governors funding plan to boost the national rankings of three Florida universities. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Explore the history and culture of our state as the Florida Historical Society presents Florida Frontiers. Discover how history impacts our lives today as we travel to historic sites from Pensacola to Key West and all points in between. From native people to Spanish settlers to cracker cowmen and beyond, we examine the diverse heritage of the Sunshine State. That's Florida Frontiers, presented by the Florida Historical Society. Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm Melissa Fato. The University of Florida filed a motion to dismiss on October 14th in response to a legal complaint made by a former UF astronomy graduate student, Sonkalp Gilda. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Grace Blair about the details of the case. Grace begins by summarizing her reporting thus far. So um, what happened was a former PhD student in the astronomy department here at UF decided to um, sue UF uh, on the basis of unpaid overtime wages under his former supervisor, Dr. Zachary Slepian. And UF filed a request for a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. So that up to this point is the most recent update on this case. Um, the former PhD student's name was Songkulp Gilda, and he also filed an EEOC complaint. That's essentially a complaint on the basis of uh, what he described as, quote unquote, discrimination and harassment that he faced while here at UF. That will potentially turn into a lawsuit, but at the moment, the, um, the ongoing lawsuit is on the basis of unpaid overtime wages, as I mentioned, which he said um, he worked over hours pretty frequently during his time here. And um, based on his student visa status, uh, he uh, went far over the limit of the hours he was allowed to work. So that's uh, the basis of the current lawsuit and that the EEOC is likely to turn into a lawsuit. But at the moment, it is simply a complaint. How did you find this story? So um, 
it was essentially a friend of a friend told me about this Twitter thread. Um, and what happened was Song Called Gilda um, posted a big Twitter thread on September 15th, announcing that he was planning to sue UF two years after his experiences, um, which um, a little background on that. Um, so he switched advisors in February 2020, um, but chose to not sue until after receiving his, his doctorate degree. So yeah, so essentially he announced it on Twitter that he was suing two years after the incidents occurred. He announced that on September 15th in a Twitter thread, it was 24 posts long. And in that thread, he was detailing some of the harassment and discrimination that he was facing while in the department, along with the reasons he was deciding to sue. So uh, after seeing that Twitter thread, I reached out to him over Twitter and we got in touch there. Could you go over some of the examples he gave in that thread? Yeah, of course. Song Call describes some um, of the what he called racism, harassment, and retaliation that he faced while working here. He said specifically under his advisor, Dr. Zachary Slepian, he was often um, discriminated based on his race. He said, um, quote unquote, he once told me as an Indian, I assumed you were submissive when I tried to stand up to him. He also said that retaliatory behavior was normal coming from Slepian. Sankalb said uh, that Dr. Slepian would often make comments about having power over him um, on the basis of his student visa status. Um, he said that he was often subjected to working over hours, as I mentioned. He said it was not uncommon to be working 60-hour work weeks or so when his student visa limited him to 20. Um, he also mentioned that upon going to the department chair, Dr. Elizabeth Lada, that his complaints about Dr. Slepian were often ignored. So yeah, he, he said that Dr. Slepian has called him an idiot in the past. Um, he said that at one point when he complained to the uh, department chair, Dr. Elizabeth Lada, that afterwards Dr. Slepian asked to have a meeting with him. Um, and at the beginning of the meeting, his first words were, quote, how dare you complain to the department chair and put my tenure in jeopardy. So there were a lot of instances of that sort where um, Songkulp just felt like um, he was being discriminated against based, off, based on his race and on his status as a student, as a visa student. Were you able to get any comments from UF? No, unfortunately, uh, UF and UF's attorney cannot comment on ongoing litigation. Um, I reached out to Olivia Weissman, who is UF's attorney. Um, I reached out to Dr. Elizabeth Lada, the astronomy department chair. Um, I also reached out to Steve Orlando and um, Hesse Fernandez, and they all were unable to comment due to the ongoing litigation. And there was another incident with a UF grad student experiencing abuse from an advisor. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so Songkulp um, referenced the incident that occurred in June of 2019, um, in which a, a, a former graduate student of uh, UF professor Tao Lee committed suicide. Um, Songkulp referenced this in his tweet um, just to bring attention to how um, alleged abuse of graduate students under UF professors or just in academia in general under professors um, will often go unnoticed until it's too late. Um, he referenced that just hoping to bring attention to the fact that um, incidents like these do occur and they are serious and they can escalate if no one looks after them. 
Um, so unfortunately, um, UF has had a few incidents like this and um, hopefully by more people like Sankalb speaking up, you know, um, the culture can change, especially before it's too late. In your article, you mentioned Graduate Assistance United. Could you describe what that is? Yeah, sure. So um, essentially, Graduate Assistance United is a student union at UF um, meant to protect graduate students and graduate teaching assistants um, from being um, from being taken advantage of by the university system. Um, so it's a workers union essentially that exists on campus um, to kind of put in preventative measures to um, make sure situations like sound cults don't occur regularly. And so um, they provide support to graduate students. Um, they provide them with resources. They will provide uh, members with um, legal resources as well if necessary. Um, but overall, um, speaking with Bryn Taylor, who is a communications chair for GAU, um, the GAU really just provides support and framework for graduate assistance so that things like this doesn't happen. What are the next steps we can expect to see in this lawsuit? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I personally don't really know that I can speak on that. It's hard to say. Since they filed a request for a motion to dismiss, it is likely that motion will go through. Um, however, if it will be successful, that's hard to say. So from here, it's likely that this kind of legal battle will continue. Um, but all we know as of right now is that um, UF filed a request for the motion to dismiss. So beyond that, it's very hard to say what will happen in the future. But from what Songkalp said, it's likely that he wants to continue fighting this legal battle. He, um, he plans to continue pursuing this. So um, I don't think it's over yet, but I don't know what the next moves will be. That was producer Sarah Mandial speaking with WUFT reporter Grace Blair about the legal complaint filed by a former UF astronomy graduate student. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Sue Wagner, host of Tell Me About It on WUFT. I speak to leaders, artists, philanthropists, and innovators to learn why and how they do what they do. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. right here on WUFT. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host for today, Melissa Fato. And now to our last story. The Florida amendment to increase the minimum wage passed last November, and the first major jump to $10 happened this September. Producer Kristen Moorhead spoke with WUFT reporter Abigail Haysbrook about how this change is affecting small businesses in Alachua County. Abigail starts by telling us more about the businesses she talked to. So I talked to Ryan Stranyard first, who co-owns Plantology, which is a vegan restaurant at Midpoint Park. And he is very happy for the change. And it doesn't really impact him and his employees too much because he already pays wages that are above the minimum wage. And he was talking with me a lot about how he prioritizes mission alignment among the team. And that was something I wanted to highlight with the story was how this minimum wage change sort of reflects a cultural and societal shift almost, at least from the perspective of some of the business owners. 
For example, one of his employees, Lola Myers, she follows a vegan diet and studies sustainability and environmental science at the University of Florida. So her values really align with what plantology is trying to achieve, which is well-made, authentic, plant-based cuisine. And so Stranyard believes that if a business is struggling to pay their employees $10 an hour, they should come up with a different business model. And similarly, Amanda Bowers, who's the owner of Baker Baker, which is a family-run business at 4th Ave Food Park here in Gainesville, is also glad that the state wage went up, but she actually thinks that it should go to $15 sooner than 2026. She thinks by the time we get there, it won't be enough. And so she said that customers are always understanding if food menu items have to change to accommodate for things like spikes in ingredient costs. But... Then you have the flip side of that, where some business owners are struggling to acclimate a bit. You have um, Eros Puentes, who I also spoke with, and he's having a hard time retaining and getting new employees, especially because his wife, who co-owns the La Maracucha food truck, she can't work there anymore because she has to stay home and care for their son. So on a lot of different situational, familial, personal levels, a lot of people are whether they're employees or customers even, are dealing with increases in prices, increases in ingredient costs. And so it's very situational. And so it was very interesting for me to explore how it's impacting people on that individual level. What are some of the arguments for and against this change? Like who is who is on the pro side, who's on the con side? So one of the arguments in favor of increasing the minimum wage, especially in Gainesville, is that from the perspective of some of the owners and the employees that the cost of living is kind of high and it's it's getting higher here in Gainesville and in other parts of the state too. And so that minimum wage change allows people to work minimum wage jobs without having to work a bunch of other jobs and be able to pay for things like food and rent and that kind of thing. In the case of Lola Myers, the student who works at Plantology, she used to work a job where she was making minimum wage and it was hard for her to get by and now that she makes more it's easier for her to pay for things you know like rent and healthy food to eat and things of that nature as far as for against the wage continuing to increase it's difficult with the pandemic of course because as the pandemic has persisted ingredients have skyrocketed which means that a lot of owners have to rise their or raise their prices. Eros Puentes said that really the only solution is to raise menu prices. And the good thing about that is all of the owners across the board that I spoke with, all of the employees said that customers are generally very understanding when it comes to price rises because they understand that it's because of external circumstances such as the pandemic and state changes. So yeah, those are kind of some of the arguments for and against. The My main takeaway though from this story is that it is just so situational. It's a very multifaceted issue and it really impacts everyone in a different way. And there's a lot of different perspectives on it depending on whether you're an owner, an employee, a customer, etc. So you mentioned briefly before about some of the effects that COVID-19 is having on this issue, but can you go into more depth about how the pandemic is affecting this? One of the main things that the COVID-19 pandemic has done is it has created worldwide shipment and supply shortages, which has trickled down to cause issues for grocery stores, restaurants, and other businesses across the country. And this typically hits smaller family-run businesses like the ones I spoke with for the story harder because 
they don't have as many resources or as many funds to buy the things that are already limited. So that's one problem that is facing the entire globe. But even on a small scale here in Gainesville, that's also directly impacting these businesses. And the minimum wage ties into it because in some cases, some businesses weren't paying their employees $10 before the change. So now they have to figure out how to make the increase without having to make a whole bunch of major menu item prices changes or things like that. These discussions are discussions that are going on across the nation right now, but specifically because Florida has so many small businesses, what about this story makes it so unique in Florida? One of the main reasons why it's so unique in Florida is because this is actually the most significant spike in minimum wage that we've seen in the past 15 years. It's gradually risen for the past two decades or so, but this is the most significant spike. It went from, so at the end of 2020, it was 856. And then on January 1st, it went up to 865. And then a few months later in September of this year, it went to $10. And so that jump from 865 to $10 was a huge increase for Florida that we haven't seen in a long time. So typically every year, businesses may have to adjust slightly to increase their prices or wages rather, but in this case, it was a very big jump that we haven't seen in a long time. And it's going to continue being a big jump because in 2026, it's going to be $15 an hour. So that's why here in Florida, it's a little bit different from what other states are experiencing because other states already are at $15 or have different wages that they abide by. Can you go into some more detail about what your reporting process for this story was like? So I'd been following the minimum wage changes since November, since before November, really, of last year. It was something I knew about in the ballot because I was fortunately able to cast my own vote um, in that election. So I'd known about it and I had been following coverage on it since then. And I knew at some point that I wanted to contribute my own voice and contribute my own reporting. So I started reaching out to businesses around the time when the change went into effect in September here in Gainesville, because there are so many local ones. And I began having conversations with owners and employees and figuring out where they were at. I spoke to some individuals from the Electric County Labor Coalition. I spoke to a city commissioner. A lot of that wasn't in, didn't end up in the final story because it ended up getting very narrow the more reporting I did, but it was really interesting to speak with so many different city officials and advocates for this thing for this change because I was able to get a really firm understanding on all sides of the issue and what different people believe and why they believe what they believe, why they stand where they stand with it. So it was a lot of conversations. It was a lot of getting to actually go to the restaurants or the food trucks and speak with them, which was very fun. One of the funnest parts about this was when I went to Plantology to speak with Ryan and Lola as I was taking some pictures, he asked if I actually wanted to come inside of the food truck and take pictures and videos, and that was a very fun experience. I was very thankful to get to do that. So overall, the reporting was great. I learned a lot.
That was producer Kristen Moorhead speaking with WUFT reporter Abigail Haysbrook about how the minimum wage increase is affecting small businesses in Alachua County. Make sure to join us next Sunday, where we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Aspudu, Sarah Mandile, Kristen Moorhead, and Melissa Fato. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Melissa Fato. Thanks for listening.